Pippa Koenig works as both a designer and illustrator of children's books and says she draws her inspiration from long walks in the woods. As well as illustrating books for many other award-winning authors, Pippa is also known for her own picture book titles, such as Chatterbox Bear and The Big Freeze. Her first fiction title, Indigo Wild and the Creatures at Jellybean Crescent, published in June this year, with a second and third book in the series to follow. Pippa joined Nikki Gamble in the Reading Corner, who asked her to tell us more about her journey into children's book illustration. When I was doing my A-levels, I actually, I find it quite funny now looking back, I actually wanted to be an astrophysicist, as you do. So I took all the maths and science subjects, so um, physics and chemistry and all that. Um, And halfway through, I sort of realised that I was spending a lot more time drawing than I was actually spending doing any maths or science. So I sort of decided to go down the illustration route, sort of late sixth form. So I squashed my R8 level into one year. And the, the dumb thing in those days was to do a foundation course. So that's why I went to Camberwell College in London. Um, I had to quickly put a portfolio together in my last year at school. And then I just, I've always loved children's books and it just felt like a really natural thing for me to go on and sort of go down that route. But I really struggled to find any courses that were specific and the ones that were specific were really, really competitive. So I ended up at Derby doing, it was visual communication, colon, illustration. It was was still a bit of a mix of different sort of specialisms, sort of a general education in illustration, I suppose, in different forms. um, Mm. It's definitely informed my work. I did at uni a lot of digital skills that I would never have had had I not gone to uni. I was avoiding computers like the plague. I like anything that's got a colon in it. I love a good colon. colon. (laughs) Uh, But when we look at your books, it's obvious that you like drawing and so were you somebody that always had a sketchbook and still has a sketchbook? Yeah. What kinds of things, if you were to show me now, what kinds of things would you have in your sketchbook? So I started off when I was younger and I had a, a horse and I used to just sit in, in the field and just draw him over and over again. And I've always loved drawing horses and that's sort of how it started off. Um, and they're actually really hard to draw and I still sort of dread being asked to draw them because they're really hard. Um, their bones are funny aren't they they are their back legs are all wrong <laughs> they work they somehow they work um so I do still draw a lot of horses I love a unicorn um and just funny little creatures really anything furry or hairy I love drawing animals my my initial thing is to go to animals I'm expanding my human repertoire drawing skills but I always my comfort zone is animals I suppose any animal that has like a strange thing that you can exaggerate about it like a I don't know like a camel with its big humps or something like that I love anything you can sort of tweak to make give it more character so now we're getting into things that connect with the book that we're going to be talking about because obviously we can see the seeds of that are you drawing them mainly from life or is it essentially your imagination it's essentially my mind yeah I'm a really big advocate of life drawing I think drawing from I think you have to be able to draw things from life to be able to then draw them from your imagination and if I if I'm doing a project that I find tricky so if someone asked me to draw what the last picture book I did was llamas on bicycles which before that book would have been a total nightmare to draw um but I spent a lot of time drawing actual llamas and actual bicycles um before I could actually draw it from my brain but yeah most of the creatures in Indigo Wild are definitely just things I've made up but I've sort of taken elements of things I've actually seen 
so I can't hold back anymore. We're going to have to talk about this fantastic book, which I, I was trying to think how I would introduce it. And I thought of it as a mix, really, between there's a bit of Adam's family in there when you think of the house. There's a bit of Pippi Longstocking when you think of their parents going off being these wonderful explorers and the children left there to hold the house themselves. And there's even a little bit of Fungus the Bogeyman with all the snot flakes and things yeah. going on. <laughs> it's a mashup of all of those, yeah. but it's it's essentially its own thing too. So it would be better if you uh, introduce us to Indigo Wild from your point of view. Okay. This book sort of began as drawings in my sketchbook, actually. I was on holiday and I the very, very early beginnings of it, I was just drawing weird animals with like a zebra with a mermaid's tail and things like that and just strange mashups of different different animals and things um and sort of combining all the things that I love with make-believe I guess I've always loved fantasy and things like that and they just sat there for years and they never did anything they just sat there and I just kept drawing them and kept going back to it and then we moved house and I started to think about houses and how I could bring them all together and it all sort of came together in this idea of maybe there's a house with these strange creatures and maybe they don't really fit in and how can I turn that into a story so that's where the this sort of the bones of the story came from um and I sort of started to write some bits and bobs never really thought I could but my publishers had faith that I could do it and so the here here the book is now um and it's really about um Indigo is the main character obviously uh, she's our protagonist and she is she got rescued from sort of this magical world called the unknown the unknown world the unknown wilderness um by her parents Philomena and Bertram Wilde um and they're world famous explorers and they're slightly negligent parents in the fact that they just vanish off on these expeditions and leave Indigo and her little brother Quigley to look after their house and all the animals and creatures that happen to also live in their house so there's tons and tons and tons of fascinating magical slightly dangerous <laughs> um creatures that they live with um that indigo's parents send back from these expeditions and all the animals have some sort of quirks and differences about them which is what where it goes back to my first mm. sketch in my sketchbook so every animal or creature that lives at indigo's house has some sort of unusual trait or some of them have been cast out of their families for being different or some just have no parents or some have little things about them that make them slightly different um but they all belong at uh jelly bean crescent so they sort of made their own their own mm-hmm. family so throughout the book even though the book is silly really at the heart of it the book is just sort of slightly crazy and silly and fun um underlying all that there's I really wanted there to be a theme of um acceptance and mm-hmm. embracing difference I suppose I love your use of the word slightly, slightly negligent. Like we're just going to go off and leave these kids all. Yeah, but they're fine. They get on with it. They're totally fine. They do. They're very capable. They're very um, yeah, you know, they're probably more capable than their parents in they, many ways. Well, we'll find out in book two that they definitely are more competent <laughs> than their parents. That's all I'm saying. So yeah. we're going to. We'll find out a little bit more about some of these creatures because they're absolutely wonderful. But before we do that, I'd love to know more about this place in Jellybean Crescent where Indigo and her brother live. And I think it'd be nice to hear you read a little bit that introduces. Okay, so 
Indigo and Quigley lived at number 47 Jellybean Crescent. The street itself was fairly ordinary. The road was the usual boring grey colour. There were a few spindly trees and a regiment of lampposts along the pavement. If you looked a little closer, though, which people rarely do, you'd have seen that the tree outside number 47 was a little bit different. Its branches were twisted and knotted into funny shapes, which made it look like a gnarled and weather-beaten old monster. If you'd looked closer still, you'd have noticed that the stretch of boring grey road outside number 47 sparkled as if tiny diamonds had been mixed into the tarmac. And if you'd squeezed your eyes really, really tight, squinted very, very hard and wiggled your eyebrows up and down, you'd have seen that the lamplight outside number 47 glowed with the faintest hint of green. Number 47 was ginormous. Indigo wasn't even sure she'd been in all of the rooms yet and she'd lived there for years. Indigo loved the house so much it made her chest ache. She loved that, although every other house on the street was small and boxy and a beige colour of stale bread crust, number 47 was a mad riot of pink and green and blue and orange that made your eyes water. She loved that her house had circular windows, star-shaped windows and windows with multicoloured panes. She especially liked the huge stained glass window on the eighth floor with a picture of a unicorn on it. She loved the turrets, the overgrown garden filled with pixies, the library where the herd of snorzelfunks lived, and the greenhouse bursting with man-eating plants. The house had 16 chimneys that stuck out of the many roofs in all directions, and Indigo loved each and every one. Some were shaped like corkscrews. There was one that puffed out rainbow-coloured smoke, and Indigo's favourite were the pink chimneys on the third floor that sang jingle bells every time a fire was lit below. On the sixth floor, a flock of glittery flamingos similar to flamingos but much more fabulous, had made sparkling nests. Perched high up on the very tippity-top roof was a rusty old weather vane shaped like a pig eating a sandwich, which spun this way and that, even when there was no wind to speak of. All in all, number 47 was not a normal house. The most not-normal thing about it, though, was that nobody seemed to notice how not normal it was. The people who lived on Jellybean Crescent didn't look at Indigo's house and think, my, my, what a funny house. Or ask, why is there a pig eating a sandwich on that roof? No, they mostly just ignored it, shutting themselves inside their boxy beige houses without giving a second thought to this extraordinary house on their impossibly ordinary street. The spectacular house stood, ignored by the rest of the inhabitants of Jellybean Crescent, until one Saturday in June, when things started to go a little bit wrong. Fabulous. And <laughs> uh, I think just listening to you read, it becomes very evident that this is a great book to read aloud and will be a great book to read aloud in the classroom. Um, it also gives a real sense of wish fulfillment, you know, that idea that you can find the magical in the ordinary if only you bother to look closely enough. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's where the book started actually, because we just moved house and the house was all weird and new and I just had a baby. Um, like a week before and I stood at our bedroom window and there's a lamppost which is in the book straight out the front and it was really stormy and everything was blowing around except a cobweb on the lamppost and a spider and they weren't moving and it was really weird like green stormy light and it just sparked the whole thing yeah now as people were listening to you read that what they won't have been able to see are the two fabulous illustrations that are inserted into that piece of text and the one that I'm looking at shows that ordinary street and then in the (laughs) middle you've got this 
as you've described it, you know, we've got an observatory, we've got turrets, we've got towers, we've got chimneys. This looks like somebody that loves not only animals, but architecture as well. I love a building. Yeah, I think, I think for me, I mean, when you, all kids, I think, dream of having sort of a magic house, don't they? Or magic hideaway or a magic tree house or a magic something or other. Um, so for me, this was a real sort of fulfillment of a childhood dream. But the whole book really is just me doing what I kind of fancied doing. And I wanted it that especially to be able to, there's the next illustration of the inside. I sort of wanted it to feel like there was more to the building that you couldn't see, that you wanted to go through the doors and see what was behind. And actually, this has got that idea um, as we read through the story, they're always going up to the third floor, the eighth floor. There are so many rooms that, yeah. you know, one that is like the seaside and it's got beaches and water. You can really imagine children extending the house that That's you've it. created. There's no living room. And I think that was the whole thing with the book is that I wanted it. Imagination has no bounds. You can keep going with this forever. You can create your own creatures. You could add a floor onto the house and who would notice because there's so many. <laughs> also, it's very helpful having so many floors and rooms because no one can really work out whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> so you can just sort of make it up. And then the other uh, illustration that I wanted to draw attention to is the cutaway that comes yeah, in the middle yeah. of the bit that you read to us. I love a good cutaway. Tell us about some of the things that are going on in this. Oh, I, don't know if I love this illustration. It is the most time consuming one in the whole book. I think this took me forever. This picture, I really poured over it and had to get inspiration from my children. I was like, I've run out of ideas. What can I put in the rooms? Um, and they came up with some great things. Just find it so I can have a look. But we've got to have a ghost in the attic, haven't we? So we've got a nice ghost at the top there. Um, mm. And I think it's every child's dream to have a slide somewhere in their, inside their house, isn't it? So I had to put a, sli a slide going from one floor to another. And then some of it's actual characters. So I wanted to include some of the actual characters you meet in the book in some of the rooms. So you could almost read forward and then go back and see if you could spot the people and the creatures you, that you'd met. So I thought that was quite important. But I really just wanted it to be... You, you know, so you could trace your finger over it and go up the stairs and then see where, see which one the next stairs you could go up. And because I know I would have loved to do that as a kid. I wanted to ask you about your colour palette because it's something that's quite recognisable in your work. You know, in your picture yeah. books, that, that particular tone of blue, for example, yeah. is one that I recognise from your work. Uh, tell us a little bit about the colours that you reach for when you start to illustrate. So I'm going through a bit of a blue phase at the moment, actually. My agent's like, Pippa, stop drawing blue. Um, it's difficult to put, put my finger on. I think all illustrators are drawn to a certain sort of aesthetic. Um, and for this book, it was originally, we were like, should we do it in black and white? And that would be quicker to do it in black and white, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would definitely be quicker to do it in black and white. And then as the more we developed the text and the more the characters came out, I sort of started sneaking, sneaking some colour in. And... The world is so colourful, I think, and Jelly Bean Crescent itself and the creatures are also colourful and colour such an important part of the story that it just felt right to do it in full colour. And I don't really know why I chose the colours I did. I just sort of wanted it to be a bit mad, I suppose. I do love magenta. I We're also, we were decorating our dining room at the time and that is also blue, bright pink and yellow. So... <laughs> I think I've got a theme going on it. I don't know. <laughs> it is interesting because if it was in black and white, it would have felt more Adam's family. Yeah. You know, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, but actually yeah. in colour, 
it does give it a, bit, a very different mood uh, it does yeah I think you can get away with because some of the obviously it's for an older audience in a picture book but you don't want to go too scary that you're going to give children nightmares mm. so I think the colour sort of softens maybe some of the because the yetis do look quite sinister I think they could if they were in black and white they could look a little bit too scary on the side of nightmares mm. um so I just I think the colour I mean you can't be scared of a pink yeti can you no you can't you really can't now the plot of this story is about a package that comes back to yeah. Jellybean Crescent that's been sent by Indigo's parents they've been out exploring she's the only child I've ever read about in um, children's fiction who doesn't like chocolate so they send her some chocolate but they also send her this package so tell us just a little bit about that without giving too much away yes so as we said before Indigo's parents are world famous explorers um, and they often send her back creatures to look after in the post via monster mail Um, so it's not a new thing for Indigo to receive creatures through the post she's quite used to it and her parents don't often give her much warning. So she is sort of everyday occurrence for her for this sort of thing to happen. Um, but when she opens up the parcel this time, there's nothing inside except for a hole straight out the bottom. Um, and she's already having a bit of a stressful day. Um, and the last thing she needs is an escape monster in the house. So she spends a little bit of the book trying to convince herself that everything is fine and there's no monster and it must be somewhere else. Um, but it soon becomes apparent that potentially that might not be the case and there might be something loose in the house that she has to now, while, while they're searching for this escaped monster we mm-hmm. meet some of the other fabulous creatures now my favorite is the permaid I oh, love yeah. the permaid <laughs> <laughs> was that did that just come about for, from a little bit of linguistic play or it did yeah and actually it's I feel like I started this craze because ever since I did that and I've drawn that cat with a fishtail since before my son was born and I was sketching in my sketchbook and now they're everywhere. There's cats with mermaid tails everywhere. So I feel like I was a trendsetter there. Anyway, um, yeah, it was just, uh, I came from a drawing that I did in my sketchbook and I just thought it was quite funny because cats hate water, don't they, but fish quite like it. And I always thought, how would that work if that existed? Um, And now he does exist and he does simultaneously love and hate water so he's very grumpy all the time so he kind of lives in the bath but he doesn't want to get his fur wet that's Um, it yeah yeah yeah. and then we've got the glamingos they are great too (laughs) yeah bedecked in all sorts of jewels and not much different to a flamingo actually it's kind of just a flamingo wearing a tiara (laughs) but I just thought they were kind of I just like drawing flamingos I think they're kind of weird looking anyway aren't they and a llama corn Oh, I love Gray. Gray, so Gray and the Llama Corn is my favourite, I think. He's fun to draw. He can get away with a lot. And he does rainbow-coloured poo. And who doesn't like a bit of rainbow-coloured poo in their books? I think, I think it, especially as it smells of bubblegum. I mean, That's you're okay it, I mean, <laughs> What about the children? So Indigo is the main character, but her brother, her little brother, is quite a feature too. Yes. So they were sort of based on, very loosely based on my two children. So, but sort of swapped around. So Indigo is based, is shares a lot more in common with my son. So because she's older, I sort of wanted her to be um, slightly more responsible. I mean, she's very responsible for an 11-year-old, let's face it. She runs an entire household better than most adults, I think. Um, so I really wanted her to be sort of dependable, responsible. Um, and she's very kind, very sort of, 
clear-headed um and I wanted just like my own children they're polar opposites in every way so I thought but they get on so well so I thought I didn't want her to be on her own looking after the house so I thought it would be nice for her to have a sibling even they're adopted so they're not actually blood related so yeah that's why Quigley sort of came in and he's based much more on my daughter who just never stops is always up to some sort of mischief but is also you know always the solid dependable always there so Quigley's always there for him to go he's always got her back but also does have a big hand in causing some chaos mm-hmm. along the way it's nice that um obviously he has a hearing impairment yeah, yeah. a hearing difficulty and uh there's a lot of signing that goes on in this yeah. it's just part of the story really yes so the whole point of the book is that it's all about um inclusion and accepting people and animals and everything for differences and really celebrating those differences so I sort of wanted it felt right to me that the characters had points of difference um so indigo for example has got antlers I know you don't explain uh, those do I'm you? not going to explain why she's got antlers you <laughs> you'll find out eventually but yeah so I wanted them to have differences but not make a big thing about it you know we're all different we all we've all got differences and we should embrace them and it's what makes us brilliant so the sign language is just a part of what they do how they adapt as a family to sort of look after each other and make sure everyone's heard so that was a really important thing for me and I wanted all children really to read the book and find a character somewhere in it that they could relate to so there's loads of different characters loads of different differences and um yeah I just wanted everybody to have a voice really now as you said obviously you've got a background in illustration and you've illustrated picture books this is your first longer fiction uh how did you find the writing did it just come really easily to you it did and it didn't I mean I think picture books I find really really difficult because I have too many words so I find picture books quite tricky to write sometimes um so for me having Having more words was great, um, even though I will admit book two at the moment currently has 4,000 words too many. <laughs> so I've gone slightly too many on that. But I quite like, I mean, it took me a long time. It took me a lot longer to write this than it takes me to write picture books. But I feel like I, was, I love a description and it, it, I found it quite cathartic, actually, to be able to just describe stuff with words rather than having to put the, all the detail into the pictures so even though the pictures do have a lot of detail in I could rely more on the words some in you know pair back the illustrations sometimes and rely more heavily on the words so I, I loved it I it felt really natural to me to to age up a little bit I think and I think it, uh, as we've already explored a lot of your writing is linguistic humor so permades yeah. and flamingos and you, you can't express that in exactly the same way in a picture. You need to hear the No, word. that's it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've got my dad to thank for that, actually, because he doesn't call anything by its proper name and never has. So my whole childhood, my friends would come over and be like, what is your dad talking about? He calls cups of tea Dexters, for example. So, <laughs> like, honestly, if you came to a house when I was a kid, nothing made any sense. Um, so I think I've definitely got him to thank for that sort of word mixing up things. But yeah, I guess you're right. You need to see, you need to hear the word for it to bring the characters to life, I suppose. So a picture alone wouldn't do that. So, yeah. Fantastic. So you've already hinted that there's more coming. And yeah. you won't want to give too much away, I'm sure. But 
Can you tell us anything about what we could expect? I'm sure I can. Yeah, so book two is called Indigo Wild and the Unknown Wilderness. So we leave the house, Indigo and Quigley leave the house and venture into the Unknown Wilderness. I won't tell you why they leave the house, but there is a reason. And there's lots more creatures, new creatures. There's um, some old faces as well and a surprising twist. Please tell me the permaid is still there. He's not a main character, but he'll be back, I'm sure. Excellent. He'll be back. (laughs) Uh, It's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Pippa. Thank you for introducing us to the world of Indigo Wild. I look forward to seeing what children make of it too. Yeah, I hope. I just really hope people enjoy reading it um, as much as I enjoyed creating it. So, brilliant. Thank you for having me. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.